Welcome to BSF. My name is Vicki, and we are going to be studying more in the book of Matthew tonight. We're on, I think, Lesson 11. We're start, going to start in Matthew 9.35 and go through the end of Chapter 10. So, we have a lot to cover tonight. Let's pray, and we can dive right in. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your compassion, that you would know how out of step we are uh, just naturally without you, apart from your work in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you would invite us, that you would draw near and that you would invite us to respond to your Son, to see him in his beauty and his power, and that we might behold your larger plan and mission. Uh, Father, we thank you that um, you love us um, to this extent to send the Son, Jesus, to the cross, that um, our sins could be paid and we could be in fellowship with you. So, Father, we pray that in these minutes that are uh, that we'll be looking in Matthew uh, tonight, that we would have open ears and open hearts and open eyes, that we might see your Son, that we might understand who He is, and that by your grace we might respond favorably, that we would respond with love and faithfulness um, and be willing to answer the call to follow Jesus and um, in all that that entails. Pray that you would uh, be with us as we uh, look at maybe the things that we could be doing right now and aren't, and uh, help us to not multitask, help us to focus on what you have for us. Please be with me and my words. Help me to say what is only true and glorifying to Jesus. We pray in his powerful name. Amen. So, in North America's Rocky Mountains, there is a place called the Great Divide. And as my family has uh, driven past there uh, a number of times across that line, we will get out and we'll take a picture by the sign. And it's interesting to think about that on this great continent, if you are a raindrop, if you fall to the east of that, uh, your path is indirectly or directly going to the Atlantic Ocean. And then if you fall to the west of this theoretical line, you are going into the Pacific Ocean, and you don't get to stay neutral. In fact, maybe a raindrop that falls on that gets split in half, but there's no raindrops that just sit on the top. You either fall to the west or to the east, except if you are a raindrop and you fall in a geographic basin. And there are a number of these in uh, North America, but there's one in the Red Desert of Wyoming where no rainfall drains into any ocean, and it's like a, a big bowl. Um, and I guess that raindrops can they can just stay there, um, whatever whatever would do, uh, whatever would uh, that would look like. And there is a part of me, and I suspect maybe many of us, that would like to go through life uh, in a way that we at least have the option to stay in sort of that basin bubble where we're in limbo. We could remain comfortably neutral about the things that we don't want to think about, that we could select our level of commitment and responsibilities, be passionate about the things that we care about, but then really be reserved and not be involved in other things that don't uh, please us or align with our priorities, as if we could orchestrate our life 
as if we were going through a buffet or ordering through an a la carte menu where we get to choose, oh yes, I'd like a good paying job, but a very, very flexible work schedule. A boss who is generous with his praise or her praise, but uh, doesn't really require very difficult things and uh, doesn't draw attention to my weaknesses. We like family holidays where, yes, there's good food, there's emphasis on the things that I value, uh, but please, we'll not have any of the things that I don't want that would ruin it, a relational tension or annoying personalities, political conflicts, old hurts. Um, and in our passage tonight, Matthew 9.35 to 10.42, Matthew presents a view of life that is not at all like ordering from a buffet or being a raindrop just hanging out in a neutral basin. It is much more like the great divide. Jesus Christ, his person and his work force a response to him and his uh, kingdom. And it's more like in uh, Nazi-occupied Europe. Uh, After June 6, 1944, when the Allies made their uh, amphibious landing, and they were on the ground, they were reclaiming territory, and at first it was very slow, uh, like 500 yards, a yard at a time, and they were fighting in hedgerows for about two months, Um, and yet they're the people in France and uh, Belgium, I think, were hearing about just rumors of the Allies are coming, and um, they had to decide what to do. Would the Allies actually arrive? Uh, what allegiance should they have? And as the Allies came closer and closer, people began to take risks and uh, choose a different side than the way that they had been behaving under Nazi occupation or be more of, or be more overt about it. Um, And in a similar way, uh, the coming of the kingdom of heaven uh, is made manifest in two dramatic ways. It requires a response. Jesus is coming. Um, He came once in his incarnation, and we are in this in-between time, the now and not yet of his kingdom. It is still expanding and growing, and yet we await Jesus' promised return, that he will come and uh, complete all the work that is uh, promised in God's promises of redemption. And so, the two dramatic ways, these are the two choices, the great divide. Um, There are those who will receive the good news about the kingdom, and they will be, by Jesus' supernatural power, transformed and equipped to participate in Jesus' kingdom work. That's the one option. And the second choice, uh, the second response that we see, especially in this passage, is there are those who reject the good news about Jesus, and um, they become active adversaries that oppose Jesus' gospel message. And so, not only does Jesus leave no space for neutrality or for um, us to pick and choose what uh, we how involved we would be in his kingdom, um, he exposed our heart problems. We are prone to conflicted allegiances, short-sighted priorities, but Jesus, who looked on the crowds with compassion, also, we trust, looks on us, even now in our modern day, with 
compassion, and sees our need, wise and loving Jesus has our best interests at heart because true human flourishing only comes through a wholehearted embrace of God's mission. And I think that's what we can learn when we're studying tonight. Following Jesus is costly, but there is no reward that uh, can can make up for what um, we will have to give up or what uh, we... There's no reward that would compensate for aligning with Jesus um, that would be worth uh, foregoing joining his kingdom. And so the outline tonight, we're going to be covering of Matthew's second of five teaching discourses. And uh, the first, there's two ways that we can really break up this passage. Um, we can see if we if you open your Bibles... You can see in 935 um, is in is narrative, and then it starts, Matthew starts the teaching section proper in verse 5 of chapter 10. And so, basically, 935 to 10, 10 verse 4 is establishing the context, and then the rest of chapter 10 is the teaching um, where Jesus is instructing his messengers, his apostles, about his mission. We're going to cover this tonight in two divisions for the sake of time. We're going to follow Jesus in his mission. So, that's the first part, chapter 9, verse uh, 35 through 10, 15. And then we're going to uh, follow Jesus in his suffering, 10, 16 to 42. So, let's, let's dive on in. So, following Jesus in his mission, after two chapters recounting Jesus' miracles in chapters 8 and 9 that illustrate the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew gives a summary marker in verse uh, chapter 9, 35. And we can see that, compare it to uh, chapter 4, verse 23, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So, that is Matthew's literary cue to us to start a new section. Um, and then in these next verses, uh, 36 to 38, we get to see the reason behind Jesus' mission and the context for his upcoming teaching, his compassion for ordinary people. And so, he, verse 36, uh, it says, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. So, there's two similes or images that uh, Jesus uses there, that God's people are sheep and God's people are a harvest. And this these would have been very familiar to Matthew's first century agrarian audience. And both of them uh, point to that God's people need faithful workers. Sheep without a shepherd are vulnerable, they're exposed, they need faithful leaders who will uh, protect them and bind up their wounds and tend the flock. And uh, people are like sheep, is what Jesus is saying. And so, there's an implied indictment on the current Jewish religious leaders of that time that they were not doing that. Um, when Jesus, he says, Jesus' people are a harvest, or he used that imagery, it's in a, he commands them to pray. And so, that 
also includes not only the literal act of praying, which I agree it definitely does, but also an implicit call to become the kind of worker, become the kind of servant in Jesus' mission who has the master's interests in mind, and in fact, goes so far to boldly intercede to the master for the master, for his interests. And so, the idea is you work a harvest when it is ripe. And what might that mean? Probably it means that many people at that time were ready to hear the gospel message just as they are now. Uh, And that's predominantly because it's back connected to because they are are harassed and helpless. The gospel of Jesus speaks directly to this. God sees harassed and helpless people and has compassion for them. Does that give you encouragement of where you are in your life or was you see the problems in your community or in our world? It's it's a call for those who follow Jesus to have hearts and habits and interests increasingly marked by compassion for God's care of ordinary people. Um, and that we would increasingly have eyes to see how people are in need of God's redemption and be willing to intercede with God on their behalf. And so there's a wholeheartedness that's required. And as we go into um, chapter uh, 10, verses 1 to 4, we see Jesus doing just what he asked his disciples to pray. He is sending workers out into the harvest, which also suggests that he is the Lord of the harvest, that he has been given authority to do that sending, which evokes, if you remember in chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, the centurion's words, that Jesus is the one who has authority um, to direct the work that God is doing. And um, and so, in verse 1, we see that Jesus sends his apostles out to do exactly what he'd been doing. Um, if you look at ver- uh, chapter 9, verse 35, again, uh, compare what Jesus had been doing to what he instructs them to do in verse 1, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And so, these these chosen ones, these apostles, are to represent him and to be his agents, his image bearers. And so, just wanted to pause a little bit and say, okay, well, um, it does sound weird in our modern ears, in our culture, to think about uh, Jesus giving his apostles, the ones he is sending out, uh, authority over evil and unclean spirits. Um, that may feel bizarre to you, and uh, you may think, wait, the source of problems isn't spiritual, it's physical, um, and our culture typically sees particularly physical problems having physical solutions. We don't have time to unpack this. Um, I'm Especially if you're in St. Louis, I'm happy to dialogue with you about it if you have questions, but I do want to suggest that Matthew's original first century audience of predominantly Jewish people would not have felt that tension um, that we might feel uh, about spiritual and physical being disconnected. Um, and the, so, the purpose of the passage is not does not seem to be Matthew teaching how the spiritual and physical are connected in God's economy. Um, and so, I'm not 
saying ignore those questions. Please do not ignore any questions that you would have about that. But for the purposes of going through our passage tonight, I invite you to set those questions aside uh, and just engage with the narrative so that we can listen for the things that Matthew is trying to draw his audience's attention to. And I think that it is this, colon, the coming of God's kingdom in Jesus not only has a gathering of disciples, but equips those disciples to do and be kingdom servants in ways that they could not have been or done on their own. Um, and it is God's compassion to his disciples, uh, willing to redeem his disciples from selfishness, from short-sightedness, from working in their own priorities and uh, using life, using their life in a way according to their own timeline. And if they were called to do extraordinary things, um, as they were to, as we'll see down in uh, verse 8, that they certainly were called to do those things, how much more were they also implicitly called to do the ordinary things, like preach the good news about Jesus? We can see that in verse 7. Tell people about this gospel, verses 14 and 27. Um, and of course, those even ordinary things have to be done in Jesus' power. And so, we, uh, Matthew then tells us in verses 2 to 4 exactly whom Jesus sent out. These are 12 apostles. The names of the 12 apostles are these. And the, the word apostles in Greek is means literally sent out ones, ones who are being sent out, like a, a king would send out an ambassador to prepare for his way and to do his work. This is these are not this is a switch from disciples, which means learners. And so what we we definitely in our modern era can learn many lessons from Jesus teaching his apostles in this chapter. Um, and in, indeed, Matthew's including this in his gospel confirms that he thought we needed to, as the people of God, read and learn this. Uh, I just wanted to clarify that you and I are not apostles, capital A. Uh, these were specific 12 men that God or that Jesus called at a that specific time in his ministry um, flesh and blood people many of them ordinary from all different walks of life and we see 11 of these remain faithful to Jesus and we will see, we see them in certainly Acts chapter 1 and uh, going out in God's supernatural power through his spirit and uh the the last one, the one mentioned, Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. Um, but just to clarify again, that you and I, if if you are a Christian, you are an apostle, little a. That in in uh, the the end of Matthew, we will see Matthew sends out all of his disciples, all of his followers, to be his ambassadors. Um, but these specific ambassadors, uh, these apostles had specific work. And so, it does take sophisticated literary, we have to use our brains in our insight and discernment and wisdom, asking the Lord for wisdom, that um, not everything that uh, is said here applies exactly to our cultural moment where we are in redemption history. And we'll, we'll touch on some of those things, but we won't touch on all the things. Um, and so, uh, we then just wanted to 
continue, just touch a little bit more on Judas, I guess, <laughs> that Judas evidently did some of this capital A apostle work, and yet he did not endure to the end, which uh, Jesus talks about um, in, uh, we will find it, uh, enduring to the end is the one who will be saved. Um, so, his deeds that were done um, could not save him, and they could not protect his heart from the path of unfaithfulness. Faithfulness to Jesus always includes actions, but is never about just externals, because Jesus requires our whole selves. Your heart, your mind, your strength, everything you are, he is king, and he demands it's allegiance, your allegiance completely, um, and your heart must align with his. If you are someone who follows Jesus, where might your heart and mind or habits be out of alignment with his? Um, will you name those spaces to him and invite him into those places to be at work and to be shaping your heart and your mind and your habits so they are in alignment with him? And how has Jesus already done that? Will you thank him? Has he been working in your heart to give you new desires, new priorities, new values, and even new courage to do things that you never thought you would be able to do? I'll tell you, I never thought I would be able to certainly teach about Jesus, but stand in front of a camera and teach about Jesus. So this uh, this act even, I just want to thank him for the ability that I have to... Um, do this knowing that he has been working in my heart and mind to make that possible. Okay, so let's, uh, as we moving on, this is verse uh, 5 to 42, the rest of the chapter is, is about the teaching proper. Jesus, what he's saying, um, it is not a linear train of thought. <laughs> so, it, we, it might feel a little disjointed for you. The ancient mind didn't give linear arguments the way that we expect them, at least in the Western world. They're basically two main sections, and so we're looking at these uh, verses 5 to 15, continue to elaborate what we're talking about in this first division of following Jesus in his mission, and then um, the verse 16 to 42 talk about following Jesus in his suffering, and so that will be our second division that we'll get to. And so, Following Jesus in his mission, Jesus begins his teaching. He lays out the shape of the overall apostolic mission. Um, in verses 5 to 6, he tells them to whom they should go. Verses 7 to 8, what they were to do. Verses 9 to 15, what they could expect for themselves as workers. And so, let's look briefly at each of those sections um, Verses 5 to 6, the who, Jesus is sending his apostles out um, to gather Israelites specifically into his kingdom. In God's economy, God's pattern from the very beginning that we studied last year in Genesis, um, he sets apart one people, Abraham's family, to be the conduit of his blessing to the, all the nations, all the world. You can see that in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. So, God always has the redemption of the whole world in view, and yet the one people that he had set apart were to be God's special agents, a kingdom of priests, revealing God's righteous mercy to the world and living it out. Of course, the Old Testament tells us of how that um, God's people, not God did not fail, but God's people 
did not live up to that uh, that mission. And so, uh, but that is has always been his plan to first extend grace to Abraham and his family, and then uh, through Abraham and his family. Uh, extend grace to the nations. And that pattern has kept up because Jesus is the true Abraham. He is the true heir of of all those promises. And in him, Jesus extends grace to the nations. And we can definitely see that in Acts 1.8. I know our lesson talked about that. I hope you had a good time discussing that with your group. Um, and so, we're going to see uh, verse 18 uh, just look there, even in this time, when the focus is mostly on Israelites, there is also preparation for this Gentile mission, um, if you look ahead in 18, and we'll get there. Um, so, that was the who, or let's talk about the what in verses 7 to 8. Uh, he, Jesus already talked about that a little bit in verse 1, um, again, but uh, Matthew told us about that. But uh, here it specifically starts with words. Uh, Verse 7, he says, uh, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And um, what is that? What does that mean, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand or is near? And I suggest to you, this is what Matthew has been showing us all up to this point and through his whole gospel, that in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises for redemption are bring, being brought near, that Jesus is that promised king um, that he promised in Second Samuel 7. Um, he is the son of David, and the mark of his kingdom is a return to human flourishing. If you read Second uh, Samuel ver- chapter seven verses ten and eleven, you can see those promises are very closely linked, and this is symbolized by the supernatural acts that the apostles were empowered to do, because there is no other path to true flourishing than through the king whom God has designated. God will not honor another king um, in the way that he honors Jesus. He will not extend his blessing to another kingdom economy. There is one king, Jesus, the son of David, and he has a certain character and he forces the issue of allegiance. Um, And so, Jesus' words focus his apostles' eyes to see in a new way, to see people and have compassion. So, again, remember, he saw the crowds um, and in verse chapter 9, verse 36, and in compassion for them. You can imagine, uh, if you know about World War II history, that as the people of Nazi-occupied Europe heard about the Allies coming, and as that became nearer and nearer and more certain that they probably had eyes to look around and say, oh, wow, there are, are there things going on here that um, the Nazis have instigated, crimes against humanity, things that are clearly not uh, right, that they had been complicit or complacent with, um, and now... Uh, they had to see something new. They had to look at these new things with the allies, how the allies understood right and wrong. And so, in a similar way, and even much more, um, Jesus, when he 
calls his apostles or he calls us to work, be his servant workers. He asks us to see the need to see people with his eyes and his priority of what he understands to be right and wrong and to see those people and have compassion. And so, in verse uh, 8a, this is uh, a little clearer in the Greek, but the focus is more on the problem than it is on the action. And so, in the Greek, it's emphasized, the sick and ailing ones, heal them. The dead ones, raise them. The lepers, cleanse them demons cast out. And so, you can see the eyes of the these apostles were to be trained on the things that Jesus cared about, that he knew were problems in God's economy. Um, and so, these were physical problems, certainly, but also there were greater spiritual realities, and that is definitely hinted with the last one, casting out demons, but also cleansing lepers. The cleansing is a spiritual um, it's a spiritual category of purity, and then even um, healing the sick and raising the dead, that those have very real spiritual realities. In fact, Paul tells us we are all spiritually dead apart from God's resurrection work in Jesus. And so, for any of us to believe in Jesus, he, is, he has to do resurrection work in us. Um, so, that work is ongoing and so, verse uh, the end of verse 8 is very important. If you're an underliner in your Bible, I encourage you to underline it. Um, you received without paying, give without pay. Or uh, NIV, I think, says freely you have received, freely give. And um, the idea is that there is a posture of generosity that's integral to God's economy um, because God had been so generous with each of these 12 men, Peter and Matthew, we know uh, about uh, specifically, they were to be that kind of generous with others. And what had they received? Jesus doesn't specify this and invites reflection, but certainly one of the things that we can seek nearest contextually, they had received teaching from Jesus, truth about Jesus. They had seen evidence of who he is and his power, and this was given freely. They did not deserve it. They did not earn it. And so, it was God's grace, and they were giving part of that um, giving that out freely. Um, and this was to be done as extravagantly as they had received it and generously. And so, this is something, it's a mini principle, hold on to it. The motive for Jesus doing Jesus' work can never be self-gain, can never be self-gain. There is no room for selfish ambition in the gospel. Okay, verses 9 to 15, this is addresses then what the apostles could expect for themselves, specifically in the category of, you know, their own physical needs being met. And so, were the apostles to collect pay for their work? Absolutely not. No, they were not. Freely give. And the cost to receive from Jesus is, in one sense, nothing. You didn't have, no one had to do anything to earn that. There is a cost, and we'll get, we'll come back to that in our second division. But if the work was to be offered without cost, how are the apostles supposed to have their needs met? They needed clothing, shelter, and food. Um, were they supposed to bring their own supplies to do this? And so, verses 9 to 10, at least in this case, Jesus says no. 
Um, acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Um, and so these are the guidelines that prevent the apostles from trusting in themselves or their own resources. And we can hear an echo of Matthew six twenty five to 34, especially when Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The Lord knows you need them. And so he is going to, um, he will care for you. And so it forced the apostles in a very real way to trust that and see God's care. Um, which is a blessing. And it also would allow incredible mobility. If you've ever gone backpacking versus hiking, you know that hiking is way easier. (laughs) You don't have to carry that all on your back. And so, how would this work? God would care for the apostles through the hands of his people. Um, And that is where, here we see a glimpse of ordinary non-capital A apostles um, following Jesus. They are generous. They have received freely and they are giving generously of what God has given to them, which is not the authority to go out and do all these things, um, but it is to to share, be able to share what they have. And that is the key of Christian hospitality. Hospitality is at the absolute core of the Christian life. Um, hospitality means sharing what you have because every good thing that we have from God or from come that we have comes from God and is worth sharing. And so um, Jesus gives an example of how this would work regarding lodging, which also implied meals. That's in verse 11. Um, and be just the guest of one home. Seek out a worthy person. Uh, I guess I can read that. Um, and whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Um, and so, the the that key word, worthy, is, or occurs seven times in this uh, chapter, four times in verses 10 to 14, and then three in verses 37 to 38. So, I suggest to you it is an important concept. And it seems that in this section, the response to the gospel message, our response to gospel message, is a barometer by which we are tested. Um, it's not a, an act. Um, it's an issue of allegiance for both the workers and the harvest. So, what is worthiness? What does that mean? It's not previous acts of righteousness, how well someone knows the Bible, what family, what job they have, what reputation they have in their community. But we see what worthiness is by the contrast that Jesus introduces in verse 14. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, that is what unworthiness in is, to be um not is to reject the grace that God has given um, in sending Jesus' delegates and not listening to Jesus' kingdom message. And so, the opposite of that is to listen, is to welcome. And as uh, John the Baptist said in verses 3 to 4, that means actually real life change. 3 verses 2 and 8, it's real life change. Repentance, turning back to God, but also producing fruit in keeping with repentance, and that same word that's often translated keeping is actually this word, same Greek word, worthy, um, is in worthy of repentance. And so, um, it's a call then to uh, stop collaborating with God's enemies, stop trying to live your life as if you had sole authority over it, turn to God. He loves you. He will forgive you. He will redeem your every hurt um, in Jesus Christ. And so, 
Jesus expands these thoughts um, in verses 40 and 42 and elaborates more um, on just ordinary people's response to Jesus. And so, we can see there um, in verses 13 to 15, it's a hinge, and it prepares the apostles and us to hear the next hard section, that not everyone would welcome them, uh, because not everyone welcomes Jesus, and yet it is not it was not the apostles' job to convince people, um, nor did it mean that they had failed or somehow were unfaithful if people rejected Jesus' message. And so, in verse fifteen, um, Jesus ups the stakes. Um, there, he likens their uh, what will happen to a, to those who reject. Uh, the gospel, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Um, that, <laughs> the comparison would have been offensive to hear for Matthew's Jewish audience who knew that Sodom and Gomorrah, as talked about in Genesis <clears throat> 18 and 19, um, they had rejected God. And so here, Jesus is saying anyone rejecting Jesus' uh, apostles' message about the kingdom is also rejecting God even more so in a way that is more culpable and would carry future consequences. Um, and I do suggest to you that this, that evoking of Sodom and Gomorrah is not just to remind us or to, to teach his apostles about uh, the judgment economy, but also about compassion. Um, if you go back, and I encourage you to do that this week, to read Genesis 18 and 19, um, in that story, it's a true story, the Lord revealed his plan of judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham. Um, and it seems that the Lord invited Abraham to intercede with a heart of compassion for those people and also on the Lord's own behalf. Will you, the judge of the earth, he said, sweep away the righteous from the wicked? And so, while the dust shaking off their feet in verse 14 symbolically echoes the Jewish practice of leaving a Gentile region, which is an indictment on a Jewish town, um, the heart motive evoked by the comparison between um, of doing that is not so that the apostles would be leaving like good, they have it coming to them, but rather that they would be like Abraham, moved to compassionate intercession to say, Lord, I have done what I could. Um, I appeal to your perfect justice and mercy. Be compassionate um, for for your own sake. So, a principle I think that we can learn from this first section of following Jesus in his mission is that following Jesus should mean willingly submitting to his mission. Following Jesus should mean willingly submitting to his mission. Um, and so, I ask you, what is the difference between surrender and submitting? Um, when the Allies came in to liberate Nazi-occupied Europe, there were definitely those when they came to cities and villages who rejoiced in the streets and they rejoiced because they actually were so glad to be under a new, uh, a new reign, a new government. Um, and that there were also those who may have done that outwardly, um, but they had colluded with the Nazis or they had benefited from the occupation. Um, and they might have done outward things, but inside they held back. 
Um, they probably liked the way things had been. They would have kept fighting if that were possible, but you know the way things worked out, they couldn't do that, and so they surrendered without submitting. Um, external allegiance does not guarantee internal submission, and I suggest to you that as we see from Judas's sad example that um, external allegiance and obedience, external obedience um, does not compensate for the internal, internal, willing, glad submission to following Jesus and cooperating with his plan. Um, so I wonder which uh, kind of posture do you think King Jesus desires in his servants. And the good news for you and for me, if you've identified as I have, areas where I am merely surrendering to Jesus versus willingly, gladly submitting to him, that Jesus is patient and he understands that we might often surrender um, than willingly submit, but he is in the heart and mind transformation business. So, um, because Jesus models glad submission to his heavenly Father, we can be confident that Jesus has that plan for our destiny. Um, Philippians 1 6, I think of that. He will not fail to complete the good work he has begun in us. So, if you are a follower of Jesus and he has made you new, then we can be confident that he will finish that good work. Um, the, okay, so our last division. I'm looking at my time. Yikes. Um, following Jesus and his suffering. Um, this section has so much in it. And so you're going to need to talk with your group about a lot of those things. Um, because I will just try to touch on a few points. Jesus prepares his apostles for division and opposition. There's going to be both persecution and reward. Um, there's Jesus' flow again is not, a flow of thought is not linear. And he seems to address each topic at least twice. Um, and so, while before in the previous division, Jesus was looking at the need, the compassion, and um, his faithful servant's role in performing uh, or being Jesus' delegates, delegates, this in this section, Jesus turns the focus to opposition. And um, that opposition would be inevitable. It would be intense, um, even unto death. And so we can see that as um, they may feel like they're undefended sheep in the midst of wolves. Um, in fact, they will face uh, legal troubles, um, physical issues, flogging and courts. Um, and yet, God would still be at work there too. He would not abandon them, um, even though their outward circumstances might look like it, um, that he would be using that. In verses 18 and 19, we see that, that um, and 20, that the spirit of your father would, God your father would be speaking through them to give those people hearing um, a witness about who Jesus is and what is going on. We see uh, twice sections about um, the hostility will enter the most intimate places um, of families, verses 21 and also um, 
34 to 36, Jesus is going to be like a sword, dividing in two. So that's what he, um, when he, he's not bringing peace, ultimately he is the Prince of Peace and he will establish God's flourishing, but for this time where the kingdom is now and not yet, there will be a division um, and it will be painful. Um, and so, and that is because uh, verse 22 and 24, like master, like servant. Um, Jesus is hated by some, um, and we see that we'll see that even more um, in, Ma- in the Gospel of Matthew. But in the same way, servants of Jesus who are faithful to Jesus, they will also be hated too. So there is a unity. We share in Jesus's suffering, but it also underscores the promise we will share in his vindication. Um, Verses 22b suggests that in verse 39. Um, And so, uh, of course, he says, don't be a martyr if you can avoid it. Verse 23, there's other work to do. Um, But Jesus is going to come back. Uh, 23b is mysterious. Which coming is Jesus talking about? Um, Read your notes for that uh, on that section. Um, If he's talking about when he returns the final event in history, the final judgment that he referenced in verse 15, this suggests that God's mission to Israel will continue up to the very end, and God will give many chances for his people to turn back to him. And other prophecies, like in Zechariah 12, suggest that they will, in large droves, come back. Um, and uh, Paul talks about that in Romans 9 to 11 also. Um, and so, what does it look like to be faithful or worthy? Verses 32, 33. Um, Hold your first allegiance to Jesus. Um, everyone who acknowledged me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Um, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. But here's this great promise. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Um, Okay, a principle I think that we can learn from this section um, is that Following Jesus will cost you everything. Um, And in verse 38, when Jesus talks about the cross, that uses that metaphor, when you're on a cross or you're carrying a cross, there is no, in the Roman and Matthew's audience would have understood this, there's no room for anything else in your life. You are there submitting to Jesus' loving authority. You cannot do but anything but to help him or trust him to vindicate you. In the the Roman world, the cross was meant to kill. And following Jesus, it will sometimes feel like we are dying. Um, And yet, certainly, every rebellious desire in us, every part of our heart that does only begrudgingly surrenders to Jesus, those things must die. Um, and that can feel also painful too. Um, but uh, another principle I think we can learn, so there's two from this section, following Jesus will gain you more than you can ask or imagine. Following Jesus will gain us more than we can ask or imagine. 
loving Jesus, choosing to serve his mission, will yield eternal rewards. And so there's much we cannot understand, but also it will bless us now. Don't hear what I'm saying, not saying this is not a prosperity gospel. But blessing, this blessing means he will let us share in his sufferings. He will draw our heart and mind and soul and closer to himself. He will help us to have the eyes that he has. He will teach us to trust him and to let him, and we get to have a front row seat. In fact, even not just a seat, we get to participate in watching his compassionate, sin-forgiving, powerful reign take over and expand um, to heal the sick and raise the spiritually dead, to cleanse those who are impure, and to cast out evil spirits and um, things that plague us and keep us from loving Jesus and uh, flourishing. Um, And so, Matthew and Peter, they could not hold on to any of the things they would have probably, before they met Jesus, liked their lives to be full of. Um, And similarly, you and I might have found our identities and our work, um, in our body image, um, in our family, in our um, in our citizenship status in this world, our political allegiances. But we cannot hold on to those findings, finding our lives in those things, and follow Jesus. It. Uh, <laughs> Jesus promises, like, we have to lose our life and lose it totally and completely, meaning we have to give everything up to follow Jesus. But that, so on the one hand, following Jesus has no cost. It comes freely. But on the other hand, it will cost you everything that you thought you had to gain you things that you are so far beyond joyous and glorious um, that Jesus promises losing your life on his account means actually finding it. Life in the basin of this world, life in a Nazi occupation, life in a buffet line of where we're picking things and leaving things out according to our own ideas about what is good or best for us, that is a mere shadow of living. And Jesus wants more for us. He loves us and he wants us to flourish. So, um, in verses uh, 40 to 42, just to close, um, Jesus turns the unity of his apostles that he has with his apostles to also any of those who, like you and me, are hearing his message and have the opportunity to receive the truth of it. To receive the message of Jesus' true apostles is to receive Jesus. And so, if you can sense in your heart and your mind, you want to be someone who is allied with Jesus, is on his side, is transformed by him, is used by him, has an inheritance that can never fade or perish, that has been bought by his blood, not by anything that you do um, or anything that you bring to the table. If that is the case, then this is an encouragement for us to believe Matthew's account of Jesus is trustworthy. It's authorized. And so our faith stands, our faith in Jesus stands on the credible account of, of Matthew's apostleship and those like him, eyewitnesses to Jesus' testimony and the reality that they, um, they are authorized reporters of what King Jesus wants us to know and learn about him. Receiving Jesus means costly things. And yet, wow, 
so worth it. What a kind God who would go to such lengths to win our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to engage with your heart and your word that we could see, uh, we pray, by your spirit, true things and glimpses of who your son actually is, that uh, we pray our lives would be different that our homes would be reflecting more of His glory, that what comes out of our mouths would be more honoring to Him, that we would be more gladly willing to lay down our lives for the sake of His mission and and have compassion for those that He is compassion for. We pray that uh, you would accomplish this to Jesus' glory in His name. Amen. Bye, friends. Have a great week.